Well, good morning. My name is Jason Weatherholt. I'm the Family Life Minister here at Windsor Road. And, uh, and isn't it really cool when our uh, former high school students come back and uh, bless us with their gifts and come and hang out and spend some time with us, isn't it? So very proud of that guy. So very, very proud. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems like it has just been a full summer this year. Is anybody else feeling that way, that like summer's not been the step back reprieve moment maybe that you thought it would be? It's just been full. And I was, I was just saying that I, I, I cannot wait. I'm hoping that that day is coming within a few weeks where not all of my emails begin with the words, hey, I'm sorry it took me so long to get back to you. I was gone again on another trip. But I, I don't know if you're feeling that way. Um, we have had just some great, great, great church trips this summer, um, and I thought I'd just give you a, a kind of an overview of a couple of them. Um, in June, I was able to go on our DR mission trip down to the Dominican Republic. Uh, this is my sixth time going on that trip. It's just an incredible blessing every time we get to go. Uh, down in the DR, we got to visit with Pastor Isen, uh, the Haitian pastor on the island that we support here as a church, and get to see kind of what's going on in his life, and that was great. We had some uh, high school students who were on the trip with us, and uh, it was kind of a neat opportunity. We go with Go Ministries, and we're touring the Go School, and we're seeing their vision for what they want in the future. Uh, And at one point in the middle of the tour, I grabbed one of our high school guys, and I just said, what if there's a chance that you are going to be the answer to the prayers that they're praying here someday about their vision for the future? Of course, then I had to come home and apologize to his mom and say, I may have sent your son into missions, and I'm really sorry about that. Really, really sorry, but I think God wanted me to say that to him. Um, but probably one of the coolest things that happened on this trip, honestly, was, was pick up basketball, as crazy as that sounds. Um, we would go down there and we would do these, you know, big, long kind of work days, and it is hard work. We're shoveling rock and we're leveling this ground for a court that they're going to build eventually. And while we're down there, um, you know, you, you kind of get to the end of the work day and you're tired and you're sore and everything aches. Uh, and then it's like, what are we going to do this evening? And somebody suggests, well, let's go play basketball next door at the school, you know, and it's somehow that seemed like a good idea. So, uh, so we went over and, and uh, of course, the Dominicans were pretty reluctant to let the gringos come in and play basketball with them. So it took us a while to get on the court and we absolutely got thrashed. All right. We just absolutely got whooped in our, our pickup game. So we kind of left with our, you know, our heads hung low and and uh, so we, uh, we leave, we go, and we play, uh, we go, and we work the next day. And again, we get to the end of the day, and someone suggests it'd be a good idea to go play basketball again. So we do. We go and play, and we get smashed again at basketball, all right? So I am no dummy, right? After two days of this, I'm thinking, let's not go back on the third day. It's not the hard decision to make, right? Let's not try to beg our way on the court and get beaten again. Um, well, we're working in the afternoon on the third uh, work day on this trip, and one of kind of the local thug, uh, organized crime kind of leader guys who's been playing basketball on the court the other days comes over to the fence and tells us he wants us to get done working soon so we can come over and play ball with him again today. We were kind of like, whoa, you know. So that sounded like a lot better than continuing to shovel rock that afternoon. Um, so we, uh, we kind of, we get done, we head over there, and we kind of find out, we end up winning a couple games and we play some more Uh, And we find out kind of the rest of the story the next day, which is that this guy, this kind of local organized leader guy, um, actually grew up going to the feeding center that Go Ministries does in Atadoyaki, where our church supports. And, And because of some of the interactions he's had there as an adult with them, because of us continuing to go back and play basketball even after we were getting beaten and all that stuff... Um, he sent back kind of a message that, that Jen, the missionary we work with down there, 
is okay in his book, kind of has his protection in that area because he's seen what she's doing in the lives of kids there. It was just, it was just one of those ways where you see God use something goofy like pick up basketball to make a difference down on the island. It was amazing. And we were back for a couple of days. We took our high school students to a week-long conference called CIY, CIY Move in Michigan. And uh, it's always a great conference, 1,500 high school students uh, worshiping together up in Michigan. It's just a really, really, really neat week. Uh, and we always have that, you know, where we're advertising the trip and, and students are like, oh, you know, it's too expensive or oh, that week doesn't work in my schedule or whatever else. And then the students we take on the trip come back going, how does anyone ever miss this? You know, how did I not go on this before? It's just great. And our students, I was so proud, our students on this trip ended up building a relationship with a homeless man who was there right next to the campus and had kind of an ongoing couple of days interaction with this guy. I was, I was just blown away at their heart for the world around them. The, them taking steps I may not have taken in the same situation. I just thought it was awesome. Well, we were back for a little bit, and then we headed out to Little Alley in Clinton, for our week of junior high camp. And uh, this week of junior high camp has been a huge blessing. Uh, we, I've started, uh, this is my eighth summer of being a part of this week here. And, uh, you know, we first started, we had a lot of fun with it, and then we said, what if we up the ante a little bit and we make the worship band a little bigger and a little louder? And then we said, you know, one of, our, one of the guys who helps to plan the week uh, is a tech director at church. What if he just brings a bunch of lights and we do cool stuff? Uh, and before you know it, the, the week has started to fill up. In fact, last year, three weeks out before the week of camp, it filled up, which had never happened to us before. This year, that week of camp filled in May for a week of camp in July, you know, in the middle of summer. It was just a huge, huge blessing. Neat to see uh, students who are, uh, you know, really getting serious about their faith. Neat to see that some, um, some of our faculty now are people who went to the camp as junior hires uh, years and years ago. So it's just been kind of neat to see. Well, I have a routine. Has anybody, anybody ever been a part of a week of camp like that? You know, been maybe faculty at a week or helped out? Okay, a few of us have. Well, I have this routine where, you know, you get to kind of the end of the week. And it's been great, and it's been an awesome experience, but you kind of hit a wall, right, where you're just ready to be home, not see another student, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so my routine is I skip supper on Friday, uh, and then uh, Friday at 6 o'clock, we have the baptisms, which this is Connor Bunting, our uh, student ministry coordinator, baptizing one of our Windsor Road girls there at the end of the week. Um, and so I'll go to the baptisms, and then on my way back from Little Galley, I'll run by Clinton, pick up some Taco Bell, and then just eat in the car in silence on the way home, right? No music, no radio, no people, no nothing. You know, it's just me and the equipment, all the tech equipment I'm bringing home. It's just this great moment. Well, this year, instead of having that kind of same routine that I've had in past years, uh, this year instead, we, uh, Justin Craig, our children's ministry director, uh, deemed an overnight camp. So as all of our, you know, whatever they were, 150-some middle schoolers were leaving camp, 63rd and 4th graders came in to the camp, and we stayed for another day, which was a totally different kind of experience. Um, but we had just a great time. Uh, we had several Windsor Roaders who helped to put on that overnight camp uh, for little kiddos, uh, tons of Windsor Road families that were involved. It was really, really neat. And you can imagine that at the end of being gone three out of five weeks on these church trips, I was ready to kind of get out of town for a little bit. So my family went to St. Louis, uh, which was a ton of fun as well. Uh, And you know, it's one of those great times, right, when you can go to St. Louis and then come home with two cub hats. You really feel like it was mission accomplished, right? I mean, it was just like, amen, you know, yeah, thank you, thank you. So we had a great time. 
Uh, at the end of that, then a friend of mine from Colorado flew into Chicago and it went up. We had just kind of a dude's weekend in Chicago. We uh, rode the Divi bikes around a bunch. We uh, uh, got to go to my first Cirque show. And then we, uh, we did a slice, I highly recommend this. We did a slice of Chicago pizza tour. All right. This was amazing. It's a walking tour. You go to three different deep dish places. It is an awesome thing to do. Okay, and on part of this trip, I had this moment where I sat back and I said, man, what is more manly than this, right? You know, two studly guys descend on the city of Chicago and then carve out some time in the weekend to go shopping on Michigan Avenue, right? I mean, what is more manly on a dude's weekend than that? And to protect anyone who went on that trip, I will not tell you which one of us was shopping for new boots on the trip. But anyway... Note to self, by the way, if you're ever going to reference your shopping and boots and stuff for service, make sure that the stickers are off the bottom of your boots. I sat down and my wife was like, the stickers are on your boots. Anyway, now I'm not, I don't know about you, I'm not a big shopper, really not a big shopper at all. Uh, I am blessed uh, to have three ladies in my house who enjoy shopping a whole lot more than I do. And so when I go with them shopping, uh, typically my favorite thing to do, I don't know how many of you like this, I like people watching. When you go to the mall or you go where else. Anybody else enjoy people watching? All right, a few of us, good. I just love, it's kind of this great study in human nature and what people do. And one of my favorite things when you're out people watching is like that dude. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like that guy when you're at a department store like JCPenney or Bergner's or wherever else. You know, there's always this guy who's like walking down the aisle and strutting and everything. And then he gets somewhere where he sees one of the columns, And, you know, what are on all four sides of those columns? Mirrors, right? And so it's like, you know, the dude's walking and looking or whatever else. And then when he sees the column with the mirrors, it's almost, it feels like that blue bug zapper, you know, that you have out behind your house because it's like time is frozen, right? As he looks into that mirror and starts, you know, checking out and whatever else, right? You know, making sure everything looks good. And all that. And after that guy spends what seems like an inordinate amount of time checking himself out, making sure his flat build hat has moved just right, you know, and the sticker hasn't moved or any of that stuff, right? You know, the guy's got the hat going and everything. When he's ready to move on, he does so, right? So he keeps walking. And what is 30 feet away from one column? The next column, right? And so here's this guy who has just checked himself out, made sure that he's totally fine, walks 30 more feet, and here's another one. And what does he do? Stop and look again. And I've never quite understood this because it's like, did you forget? I mean, I mean, did you forget what you looked? Did you think that like, like the, the, a tornado came through and you look drastically different than you did 30 feet ago? I have no idea what's going on in this. Well, um, I, uh, if, if you and I know each other uh, very well, then it probably doesn't come as a surprise to you that I have a few slight... OCD tendencies, okay? All right, just a couple of them. I like to think of it as I know how things ought to be done properly. Um, other people want to label it a disease, right? But, you know, like, <laughs> this goes back as long as I can remember, right? Even when I was a kid, um, I ate my candy grouped in colors, you know? Like, and somebody caught me in the lobby after church and said, yes, I totally understand, you know? Like, if there aren't the same number of Skittles, you got to eat them till the, like, they're the, anyway. It's a sickness. But there are more of us around, so watch out. Um, but, you know, I th- it's like things just make sense, right? If you're changing the volume on the TV, it has to be on even numbers, right? That just, things just make sense in life. I just, I don't understand why other people don't get this. Well, I took a class in college um, called uh, 
uh, Principles of Bible Study 2. And you can imagine the prerequisite to Principles of Bible Study 2 was Principles of Bible Study 1. And so I had, now I'll translate this a little bit for the college students who are in the room. Back in the Stone Age, when we went to college, you know, and we had to like walk uphill both ways to get to school and stuff, we had these folder things where we put paper in, okay? And, and they would put three holes in the papers and then you'd put it in your folder and that's where you, and then you get out this writing thingy and you would take notes, okay? That's how we did it back in the prehistoric era when we dodged dinosaurs on the way to college. But anyway, so... So I had, I wanted, my, because of some of my OCD stuff, I wanted my Bible Study 2 folder to look exactly like my Bible Study 1. Now, mind you, all I had done was take a Sharpie and write on it, Principles of Bible Study 1, Jason Weatherholt. That's it. But I pulled it out and studied it to make sure the new one would look exactly the same, okay? So I think, all right, I think I can handle this. Put it back on the shelf, sit down on the floor, start writing it out, get halfway through, and it's like the knowledge just fell out of my head, Right? So I get back up, go to the shelf, pull the folder out again, and begin looking so that I can make it look exactly the same. And by this point, my roommate is falling out of his chair, just dying laughing at my stupidity in all of this, right? But I think that, that our mall-walking friend and those of us who have some of the OCD tendencies and yet still forget things around us are kind of a great introduction into what we're going to look at in the book of James today. Right, so we're kicking off a three-week series here while our senior minister, Randy Boltinghouse, is on a much-deserved study break. Um, and Justin Craig will be talking next week. Our children's director, Kevin Jackson, one of our elders, will be talking the week after that. And we are, we are just really excited about taking a few weeks to look at James because uh, as we were brainstorming this spring to get ready for our week of church camp in July, uh, we we're really prayerfully considering what is it that we think we ought to be talking about uh, over the week, over our week of junior high camp. And the, the book of James just kind of kept coming back to us. So that's what we chose as our theme for, for camp. And then a month later, as we're getting everybody signed up for our week of CIY with our high schoolers, guess what the theme of CIY was? It was the book of James. So at that point, it made it very obvious to us that if our junior hires have been really challenged from the book of James and our high schoolers have, it's time that our adults have to endure, right, some of the challenges that come from this really, really great book of the Bible. So I'm excited. We're starting a three-week series here uh, on the book of James. Um, And we're going to be, if you've got a a Bible there in the chair in front of you, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 1. James is way back towards the end of the Bible. So if you've got, you know, you version up on your phone, you're going to have to scroll a long ways to be able to get to it. All right, page uh, 1011, James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. James chapter 1, verse 19. Now let me give you a little bit of background kind of on this letter that we're going to look at. So this James, who wrote the book of James, the very creatively entitled book of James, uh, James uh, is the half-brother to Jesus. Now that, maybe that sounds like an odd thing to say. Okay, remember, Jesus' father was God, his mother was Mary, Well, then Mary gets married to Joseph and has some other kids. And so James is a product of that marriage. So, so, you know, Jesus and James grew up at least in some amount of of the same uh, kind of uh, family. Now, we have record, especially in John 7, that, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him initially. In fact, there's a record in James 7 of them kind of trying to, to pull him back and rein him in on some of what they you know, interpret as the craziness of what he's speaking about. It's not until, I guess, after you see your brother get put up on a cross, die on that cross, go into a tomb, and then a few days later that tomb is empty, that all of a sudden you begin to change your perspective just a little bit. 
And there is just this remarkable shift that happens in James' life. From the brother who didn't believe in Jesus to uh, someone who is with the disciples in the upper room praying for the Holy Spirit to someone who becomes a leader of the Jerusalem church uh, and in fact becomes kind of an early pastor in the Jerusalem church to someone who advises Paul and the Apostle Paul follows some of that advice of, of James in his life. And the book of James becomes one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. It's one of the very first ones. James ends up getting martyred for his faith eventually. And what's, what we need to note kind of as we get ready to jump in here to verse 19 is that James, the book of James is written particularly to Jewish Christians. So these are people who grew up knowing about the Old Testament, grew up following God, grew up understanding their place kind of in the lineage of David and, and, of, you know, and of Jesus' line. And yet they've come to faith in Jesus. And so they're trying to figure out that relationship between the Old Testament law they grew up with and the grace that Jesus has ushered in, in their life. So we're going to look. James chapter 1, verse 19, page 1011 in your uh, Bible in the chair. And as we read, I think this will be, uh, it'll be probably obvious to you that you and I maybe don't need to hear this right. Maybe it's that kind of shady guy just a few chairs down the row. He needs to hear this. But I think, you know, I think you'll find there's just nothing that applies to us in here, okay? So verse 19 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. I love the way James starts. Now, uh, just let me give you a heads up, okay? James is one of the toughest, most in-your-face books of the entire Bible. So when James begins in a way that says, my beloved brothers, he's basically saying, listen, friends, I'm about to kick your butt, okay? I, I have some very, very important information for you to hear. And we probably all kind of know that tone, right? You know, maybe you experienced that, that tone growing up, or maybe you have that tone uh, in your house. I remember we had, a couple years ago, we were at a week of CIY and had, in those days, a particularly challenging student in our high school ministry and I went to his dorm room one time at CIY just to sit down and say, hey, man, I, I need to talk to you for a second. He said, oh, great, what do I do now? You know, we just kind of know that tone when we hear it, right? So he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. See what I mean? This doesn't apply to us at all, right? We've all got this mastered. Uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I mean, you know, while we're out driving, that is no problem for us, right? This has zero application in our life because we're doing just fine. As I know, as many Windsor Rotors as I'm friends with on Facebook, it's certainly not a struggle there, right? Every time I see a Windsor Road post on Facebook or a post from someone who goes to Windsor Road, it's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, right? This is just not something any of us struggle with. Or, or you know, when, when my kids this afternoon, when all I want to do is take a nap and they come in and ask their 1,000th question, which is the same as all the previous questions, right? I will be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry, all right? Actually, I was thinking that if James wrote this about me, it would be more like, you know, dear friends at Windsor Road, keep in mind that the Family Life Minister, Jason Weatherhold, is slow to listen, <laughs> uh, quick to speak, and blazing fast to become angry, right? I, I, don't you feel like this would be better if it were written the opposite about you, at least more accurate? But I love studying James, because I think it's applicable. It's as applicable to our junior hires earlier this month and our high schoolers last month as it is to us today. You know, sometimes when we read sections of Scripture, we have to contextualize and figure out what it meant then and what that means now. James could have easily been a blog post that was, read, that was written last week and read by us this morning. It is just so applicable in our life. Verse 20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, when he talks about anger, not bringing about the righteousness of God, obviously, we're talking about thoughtless, unrestrained anger, okay? Totally different, totally different for us than righteous anger about some kind of injustice that is happening around us or around the world. Certainly, James knew the story of his own brother, Jesus, going into the temple and turning tables over and making a whip and, and being furious about things, people being taken advantage of in the temple. Okay, what we're talking about here is the idea that it's okay to be passionate. It's just not okay to be reckless. Okay, it is okay to be a passionate follower of Jesus in your life. It is not okay when that passion spews out and becomes just reckless anger. I wonder if your anger produces the righteousness of or the right standing with God. I wonder if anger in your life produces anything good. I wonder how you respond to your kids when, when they drive you crazy. I wonder the ways that you talk about your boss, particularly if maybe in your life a job didn't end the way you would have liked her to end. I wonder what people see in you. I wonder about people in traffic. I wonder about the server at a restaurant or a coffee shop or wherever else who gets your order wrong. How is God made known by your responses to people? What do people learn about God by watching you respond to the situations you're faced with? You know, I I had to tell somebody this week, uh, as I apologized to this person, I had to say, you know, my second response is usually a very measured, careful, diplomatic one. Anybody else feel like that? My second response is generally a very tactful and diplomatic one. I just wish I could work on the first one. Well, um, in Collision, our teen service across the way this spring, we've been looking at a book called Unchristian with our high school students this spring. Maybe some of you read that book. It came out several years ago. And what uh, the Barna group did as they were getting ready for this book is they did surveys. They sent out tons and tons and tons of surveys, and they looked at people who would identify themselves as outside the church. Okay, so this is not some negative term or whatever. This is people who would identify themselves as not being inside the church anymore, outsiders. And for these outsiders, they said, what do you, what words come to mind when you think about Christians? You know, when you hear the word Christian, what other words pop in your mind? And you can imagine that many of the responses were things like anti-gay, hypocritical, judgmental, Um, overly political. They had just this list of things. And we talked through some of these ideas with our high school students this spring, and we continue to come back to the question, do you want to be known for what you're for or what you're against? In your life, do you want to be known for the things that you are for, the things you are passionate about, the things you love, or do you want to be known for all the things that you hate, all the things that you speak out about? Well, verse 21 says, put away these things. In the first century, that term put away was really kind of had the idea of, of taking off clothing. Okay, so it's used universally in the New Testament as a way to say shedding our pre-Christian patterns of behavior, the things that kind of defined who we were before we came to faith, getting rid of those things. It's this idea that if you come to Jesus, your life should be different. So is it? I mean, is your life different than it once was? Is your life different today than it was a month ago? I wonder if, if today after church, if we sent home like uh, reality TV cameras to your house and your work and your car and wherever else, 
And this week, we film like a reality TV show on your life. Some of you are looking at me like you're terrified. We're not really going to do it. I promise. Um, But if we filmed a reality TV show of your life this week, and the six days that you weren't at church are what we put on, you know, on camera, and we filmed everything, and then we know, and then when you made inevitable choices, then we pulled back, you know, to those interviews where we asked you what you were thinking when you made that choice. And then we edited it all down, and we showed it next Sunday up here on this screen. Six days in your life. I wonder if it would be obvious on the day that you go to church that your life was different on the other six days that you weren't here. I wonder what our lives would look like that way. Well, James says uh, to put away this filthiness and this rampant wickedness. The idea is sin gives birth to sin, right? Every decision that you make makes the next decision that much easier. Right? If you want to be a different person tomorrow, if, if you want choices in your faith to come easier tomorrow, if you want uh, living out your faith in front of others to be an easier thing to do tomorrow, then you have to make difficult decisions today. Because the choices you make today will make the choices tomorrow that much easier to fall right into. Well, he goes on in verse 22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now he's going to come back to our illustration from earlier about the, the, mall, the mall guy. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Well, James uses this term perfect law here. Okay, and if you've spent much time in your New Testament, then you've already probably figured this out, right? There's a pretty big tension in the New Testament between law and grace, right? Have you picked up on this? There's a pretty big tension between what it means to follow the commands of God and what it means to live in the grace that has been given through Jesus. And because of that, we ask questions all the time on this subject. You know, we say, is it about works or is it about grace? We say, is it about actions or is it about faith? We say, is it about religion or is it about relationship? And I'll oftentimes come and have people ask me those questions. You know, what do you think? And I always very kindly reply, well, I think that's a really stupid set of questions. Okay, I don't really say that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I don't say that at all. What I say is, how can it not possibly be both? If you have accepted the grace of God through His Son Jesus, how can that not show up in works in your life? If you have faith in His Son, how does that not turn into action in the way you live? If you value the relationship you have with the Savior of the world, how are there not some religious practices that stem from that relationship? And now you know why I love this book of James, right? He just calls it what it is for us and lays it out. And after this first chapter, he's going to make statements like this all over the place. See, for James, perfect law. Perfect law is about following God's commands out of the desire to do so. It's not because I have to. It's not because I just get a check mark. It's not because God's going to be mad at me if I don't do it. It's about following the commands of God out of your desire for a relationship with him. Perfect law is works and grace. Perfect law is faith and action. And perfect law is where religious practice stems out of relationship. 
Well, verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. All right, so we're going to get into this faith and speech issue in James. And, and next week, uh, Justin Craig, our children's director, is going to talk at length about that because in chapter 3 of James, that is what he is talking about over and over and over again. But for us, let's say this, right? I think most all of us can attest that we grew up with grandmothers who lied to us, right? Okay, now, now follow me with what I mean, all right? What I mean is that, you know, someone says something awful to you while you're at school. And then you come to grandma's house or you come home or you call grandma on the phone and you're crying about feeling hurt over the thing that was said. And what did grandma say to you? She said, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you, right? And if my dear, sweet, great-grandmother Dora were still alive today, uh, I would call her and let her know that I've just found that not to be true in my life. That many days, I don't know about you, but many days, I think I'd rather take the sticks and stones than some of the things that have been said to me and about me. Words have power. Words hurt. Words kill. Words tear down. Words can also build up, right? Words can also do so many things in our lives. And I think we could do a whole series just on this whole idea, and I would still have a ton to learn. I don't know about you. Justin's going to talk about it next week, but let's just sum it up to say this. Your speech is one of the most immediate outpourings of your heart. What comes out of your mouth betrays what has gone into your heart to all the rest of us who are around. Okay? When you build up, when you tear down, when you praise, when you curse, when you worship, when you gossip, I don't think it's possible for us to overstate the sheer volume of sin that our mouth can lead us into, right? And James is going to talk here throughout the book about religion, and he's going to use that term religion or religious practice. And I know that, I know that sometimes I think we get lost in a semantics battle about this, right? I do the same thing. I say this to our teenagers all the time. You know, it's not about religion. It's about relationship, right? What we mean is, is don't go so lost in the, the guilt and, and the I have to do everything perfectly, but, but pursue a relationship with God. And I, and I absolutely mean all of that. But I think it's important for us to know what James is talking about here when he uses the term. He means religious practice. He means things like fasting. He means things like prayer, things like corporate worship. He is talking about how our faith should show up in our daily life. How you practice your faith is worthless. Is worthless if your heart remains unchanged. Well, verse 27, the last verse uh, in our little section here. And this is honestly one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. James says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I love this verse. And I think this is such a great verse here in this community of faith where adoption is such a huge part of who we are as a church and social justice issues are on our minds on a regular basis. I love this verse has to remind us about. Okay, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a great place to start. Okay, that evidences for your faith should involve social concern for what's going on around you and what's going on around the globe. And faith should involve moral purity in our lives. It actually takes us back to how God is described in the Old Testament, right? Sometimes we get so lost in the descriptions of God as, as kind of the one who's ready to smite us, right? Or the, the one who's always sending his people into war or any of those kinds of things. We forget verses like Psalm 68.5 that says this about God. 
father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. See, James calls us to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. The quote we use nowadays is this, and it's attributed to a ton of different people. But this quote says, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. You can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who do nothing for him. Listen, Christians around the globe are speaking out on a myriad of issues. Christians around the globe are making an impact in their communities. Christians around the globe are doing the best they can to share a message, a saving message of Jesus with everybody they come into contact. Are we? Are those issues on the forefront of our mind? Are the, the persecuted church issues going on in the Middle East, are those things that we care about? Human trafficking around the globe. Orphans in countless numbers of countries. And then what's going on in your own neighborhood here are those issues that are on the forefront of your prayer life and on your mind. See, James, when he writes this, very specifically, he writes his letter to a scattered group of believers. Okay, the, the, the fun word we use is called the diaspora. Okay, what we mean by that, that, that word just means that people are kind of scattered from their homeland, from their area of origin. And what James is doing is he's writing to these Jewish believers who are scattered all over Rome. And these are people who have grown up with the practices of the Old Testament. They know those things. They've practiced them since they were kids. And yet, and they've come to faith in Jesus. And yet, in the midst of that, it's easy for distractions of what's going on around them to creep in and impact their faith. Sound familiar? That sometimes we can be so distracted and so isolated that it's tough to bring those things together. Your faith is shown in the way that you live. Okay, we around you, we don't make assessments about your life based on your intentions, do we? Okay, if I'm studying some time at a coffee shop and I see you come in and, and you have, uh, you know, I see you go and pay for something and then you get change uh, and you get too much change uh, and you don't return it. Okay, my first thought is not, man, I bet he is really working on his integrity. I bet he is just a work in progress really trying to fix that issue in his life. Or your kids. Your kids do not learn from the ways you wish you were living. And I hope all of us have goals in our life of strengthening our faith and growing and and doing better at the things that we do. But your kids learn from who you actually are, not who you want to be. Your desires, your intents, your wishes, your dreams, they mean very little if they don't show up in your life. And if you go home today and you read chapter 2 of James, you're going to see him say over and over again, faith without deeds is dead. He says, if you, you show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Our faith is shown by the way we live. I wonder what those who interact with you each day are seeing about faith. I wonder what kind of Jesus is presented to the people who interact with you in some of your best moments and some of your worst moments. Well, I want to close with this. Um, our Family Life team was, was blessed to go together to a conference this spring. And it's a conference down in Atlanta called the Orange Conference. It's about how to bring together what happens at church and what happens in the home and really build a strong family ministry program. And so we were challenged by some exceptional speakers. It was great. And one of my, uh, one of my favorite speaker author guys is a guy named Mark Batterson. Maybe some of you have read some of Mark Batterson's books. 
but he was giving an illustration from one of his books about this guy named Gypsy Smith. Okay, and Gypsy Smith was a guy who had no formal education, and yet he lectured at Harvard. He was a guy who grew up in a gypsy camp as a kid, and yet was invited to the White House to meet with two different presidents. And he was a guy who preached to thousands as he crisscrossed the Atlantic some 45 times in the course of his life. Well, Gypsy Smith gets to the end of his life, and some young revival speakers come to him, and they kind of want to know, what's your secret? You know, how, how did you have this impact? How do I start this kind of revival through my preaching? And I think the advice that he gives these young revival speakers is great a hundred years later for us to hear as well. His advice was to go home, lock yourself in your room. He said, kneel down on the floor of your room and then draw a chalk circle around yourself. And he said, the next step is to pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that circle first. And that's my prayer as we embark on a study of James as you leave here today with the rest of your life going on. That you would pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival in your little circle of faith. And that maybe, just maybe, that might become something that's attractive to others around you. Let's pray.